Welcome to Leveling the Playing Field, a podcast featuring women who work in sport. My name is Bobby Sue Doyle Hazard. I'm your host, and I have a really special episode for you all this week. Uh, before I jump into it, I just want to say I'm very grateful for all of you. Uh, you have made the past year plus really special for me, and I wanted to thank you. We're about to hit Thanksgiving, and I think it's important that we share um, with the people that we love that we're grateful for them, and so that is you all. Don't forget that we now have a private Facebook group. You can search Leveling the Playing Field group and ask to join. There are two extremely difficult and important questions that you have to answer, um, but I'll let you in. Uh, and I'm trying to start some more conversations on there. We've had some uh, introductions over the past week of new members, and I'm looking forward to getting to know all of you more. I also want to send a message out to our listeners in California. Um, our thoughts are with you. And if there's anything that we can do, please let us know. Um, you can get to us on social or through email um, at LTPF on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and then um, LTPF at gmail.com is our email address. Um, we're here for you if there's anything that we can do. And um, again, we're thinking of all of you. Now for this episode, it is, um, this young woman is, is such a superstar in our industry. Um, she's a rising star. Um, and, and part of it is this incredible story that started before she even started working in the industry. Um, and it's the perfect story right before Thanksgiving to, and actually the timing of it is based on when, um, she was in the accident, um, and when she was able to, you know, walk and all of that again, um, is right around now. So anyway, um, I'm grateful for sport. This is a great story, um, of sport doing good and the ways that we can be grateful for it right before Thanksgiving. Um, Katie Lentz is, the administrator of um, the baseball assistance team for minor league baseball. They're an organization that helps um, anybody within the baseball fa family um, going through rough times that needs help, um, whether it's through a natural disaster, um, say their house was flooded, or um, they have a drug dependency and need to get help, or they need help putting food on the table. It's a really cool program. It is funded through payroll deductions, um, uh, by pledge donations from current uh, professional baseball players. And um, Katie's story is intense. Um, when she was in between her freshman and sophomore year at Tulane, she was in her car driving and she was hit head on by a drunk driver. And it took over two hours to get her out of her car. Um, and it, throughout that ordeal, throughout that two hours, um, you know, a little faith came into play. She's, um, very faith-based, um, in her Christianity. And while she was recovering, um, baseball played a role and sports played a role. And so, um, Katie's story is pretty incredible, um, I love everything that, you know, she does at this point. I am fortunate enough to have worked with her in the past and to be able to call her as 
a friend, um, and a mentee. And, um, I think you'll all enjoy it. Uh, she was going to be a dentist and now she's working in sports. So it's pretty cool. Um, I hope you enjoy. She is a very positive, upbeat young woman and has so much, so much happening. Um, I think that she's going to be one to watch in coming years, much like some of um, our former guests like Anna Krafa Johnson. Um, so please enjoy this interview with Katie Lentz. Hey, Katie. Hi, Bobby Sue. Thank you so much for taking time to be on the podcast today. Of course. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Oh, of course. I've been wanting to to do this with you for a while. And I'm actually really happy about the timing because I think your story and career is a, a really great one to have right around Thanksgiving when we're all, you know, grateful for things because... Um, well, as we get into your story, you know, we can all be grateful for sports for different reasons, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, so you know how I usually start and I'm going to request that you answer this from like before your big story. So how did you originally fall in love with sports? Yes. So my dad is a big baseball fan and I grew up in rural Illinois on a hog farm. So when I was in about second grade after dinner, he would have to go do the evening chores. So he'd take me out in his pickup truck and I would listen to the St. Louis Cardinal games on the radio with him. And so I learned the game the old fashioned way. I never had cable or satellite growing up. So it was just learning the game on the radio and I would ask him questions like, what's a double play? Who's playing first base? Things like that. That was in second grade. And by the time third grade rolled around, he was asking me questions and I was giving him all the answers. So (laughs) I learned pretty quickly and I I learned from the best. So it was a great thing that my dad and I still share today. What was it like growing up in, in that environment? So it was, it was pretty interesting. I was actually homeschooled for the, the majority of my elementary school uh, days. So it was very nurturing and very, um, I got to experience a lot. Being homeschooled allowed for a lot of flexibility in my education. So I could go do and see a lot of things, um, you know, go to St. Louis, which is a two hour drive away and uh, experience uh, things, you know, like a museum on a day that normal kids would be in school. So I'm grateful for that. Grateful for parents uh, who um, who shared a love of learning for me, including sports with my dad. I never grew up playing sports, but it was always a part of our lives. Um, did you, I always wondered, did you have pets in that type of situation? Yes, I did. I had an outside dog. Her name was Jessie. And then once she passed away, we got a cat. It was my sister's cat named Simba. Oh. Yep. <laughs> yep. And like you didn't make friends with any of the little baby pigs or hogs, right? Uh, No, not, not really. We would, uh, my mom was an elementary school teacher at that time and she would take her classes out for a field trip for them. So I would join along with them. Um, but no, never really formed any close bonds with any of the farm animals. (laughs) I know this sounds like a crazy question, but to me, I'm like, I can't see an animal and not try and be friends with it. Right. Right. At this stage in my life, that's Mm -hmm. slightly ridiculous because you know, some animals aren't meant to be friends, apparently. 
Yeah, that, that's true for some people. <laughs> <laughs> when you were um, growing up and, well, what was the transition like when you moved from homeschool to non-homeschool? Because I'm guessing sure. you, you then went to public school or did you go to a private school? Public school, that's correct. So it was a pretty easy transition just because I play the violin and at the public school in my hometown, they had an orchestra. So in about fifth and sixth grade, I started going to the after school orchestra. They let me participate. You know, it was great. I got to meet some new friends. And then starting in middle school in seventh grade, it became part of the everyday class schedule. So second hour was orchestra. So then that's when I started going part time to public school. And then when I uh, I made a bunch of friends there, I really enjoyed school at that time. And I decided that I wanted to go to high school full-time public school when that transition came as well. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't think I knew that you played violin. Uh, yes, I do. Yep. It's been a part of my life for a long time. I started when I was five years old and then played all through high school, played in college orchestra until I got a job with the uh, school athletic department, which conflicted with Sunday afternoon rehearsals. So that's when I decided, okay, this is a hobby, whereas sports is really what I want to pursue as a career. Oh, wow. So I, Mm -hmm. um, I played bass. Nice. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, and I was a tiny human being. Um, (laughs) and I played kind of through high school. So I, Mm -hmm. I'm, kind of transitioned out of like full orchestra in high school to just kind of doing some of the events. Um, mm-hmm. I want to say like junior and senior year, um, running kind of became a little, you know, my focus at that point, but sure. that's interesting. I never realized yes. that you play violin. Very cool. Yeah. Thank um, you. and do you still play now? Yeah, I, I do play not regularly or with any sort of organization, but I do find enjoyment from it. So I'm glad it's a skill that I'll have for life. Oh, cool. When when you were trying to figure out what you wanted to do in life and you know what your career was going to be, what was your original, I don't know, what did you think originally you were going to do? I had a great interest in dentistry. Since seventh grade, I had decided that that's what I wanted to do. And wait, what I, starts that? Yeah, um, my <laughs> yeah, my brother needed needed to see a pediatric dentist when he was um, about five or six, and I would go to the dentist's office with my mom, and I just I really enjoyed it. I liked learning about it, and so all through high school and even through my first year of college, that's what I wanted to do. So I just found it really interesting. And, um, yeah, dentistry impacts, uh, uh, your dental health can impact your overall health, which I think is so fascinating and, um, is not really, uh, something that people consider all the time. So that's why I found it really interesting. That's really cool. And Mm -hmm. the decision to go to Tulane, um, how did that come about? So I had decided that I wanted something different from the Midwest, which I'd known for my my entire life. And I applied to several schools across the country. And when I got my acceptance letters back, Tulane was the only one that was not in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to go visit. My mom and I went down together and I absolutely loved it. I knew that that's what, that was where I was supposed to go. And my mom agreed we were all on board. So, uh, it definitely turned out to be the right decision. When, um, when you were still in high school and even throughout part of your time at Tulane, like the more, first of all, I've known you for a few years now. So mm-hmm. the more I research, you know, did some research on you, the more I'm like, wait, what? So <laughs> you, 
you were a photographer? Yes. My, so my parents have uh, gone through a bit of a career change. My, like I said, my dad used to be a hog farmer and my mom used to be a, um, uh, elementary school teacher and uh, she's actually doing that now, but she's also a professional photographer. So growing up in my early high school, I mean, even middle school years, all the way through high school until present day, they're wedding photographers. I've been to over a hundred weddings myself working them. So as a second or third camera, so I've learned a lot and it's, uh, it was a really fun time. My sister still is very involved with that. So she does that on the side a little bit as well. So it was a, a great, a great skill to have too. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. Yeah. I've only recently gotten good at taking pictures with my iPhone since I got a new mm-hmm. one. <laughs> <laughs> and portrait mode is my favorite thing right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so after your, I think it was your freshman year, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. There, there was a, an accident. Can you, I'm just going to kind of let you tell the story. Sure. So it was August 4th of 2013. I had just finished my freshman year at Tulane. And like I said, I'd want to be a dentist. So I was interning at a community health center that had a dental clinic in the city where my aunt and uncle lived about two hours away from where my hometown was. And I had decided to go back on a Sunday morning to see my friends at the church that I'd been going to there in that city. So I woke up early, had everything ready to go in the car. And about an hour into the drive in very rural Missouri, a truck crossed the center line of the two lane highway and hit me head on. Later, we found out that it was a drunk driver. Um, but at the time, I my car had rotated, um, came to rest on the driver's side door, and I was in excruciating pain. I was asking, is this real life? Is this really happening? Um, I found out that it, it was indeed real life. There were four fire departments on the scene that had to extricate me. It was I was in, trapped in my car for two hours and ten minutes. Um, so it was it was a really traumatic accident. And so um, I was. Th- there were several, like I said, several fire departments on the scene, and they had tried to get me out of the car, but I was trapped very, very tightly in that car. I was driving an 89 Mercedes. It was affectionately known as the green bean. (laughs) And yes, it was green. And the metal had compacted so tightly that it, they couldn't, they couldn't free me from, from the car, but it had also saved me because they said that if I hadn't been driving such a strong car, there's no way I would have survived. So it was a kind of a blessing and a curse in the same, in the same moment, but they had two jaws of life at the scene both of them were not working. Um, and so the fire chiefs got together and they said that by that time, the helicopter had already been on the scene for a while. And uh, the nurses and the EMTs were there and they said, if you don't get her out of the car, she's going to, she's going to, to die in there. And so they decided to upright the car, which is something that is, goes against every protocol because something could shift and I could be paralyzed or I could bleed out. But it was a done deal either way. So they said, okay, we're going to going to take this risk. And they did. They pulled me out of the car and put me on the stretcher. And they had to make a decision as to where they were going to take me. St. Louis was about a 30-minute flight away. And my hometown hospital was about a 10-minute flight away. They did not know that I would last the extra 20 minutes that it took to get to St. Louis with the bigger hospital, better doctors. So they took me to my hometown of Quincy 
where uh, I was, I stayed for five weeks, was treated, had six emergency surgeries, um, and uh, ultimately made a full recovery. So, and right. like you said, Thanksgiving is a good time for this. I'm very thankful for um, for all the good that came out of a terrible situation. There, this is unrelated to sport, but it mm-hmm. is such a an important part of your story and who you are as a person. Um, your faith, um, and there was, there was someone who just kind of showed up on site while you were still in the car, right? Yes. Yes, that's correct. So while I was trapped in my car, I, um, I had been asking for prayer. I'm, I'm a Christian. My faith is very central to every aspect of my life. And I had asked every person on the scene, whether it was the first civilians that were on the scene or the, the paramedics, the sheriff's deputy, I asked, can you pray for me? Can you pray out loud? Because I knew that I couldn't pray the way I needed to. I wanted to just because of the weak state of my body. So I wanted to hear the prayers of other people. So a priest arrived on the scene of the accident and none of the emergency personnel saw him drive up or drive away. He was just kind of there. And then he, uh, he, the, the scene of the accident was blocked off for a mile in each direction. So it was very rare that somebody would just happen to show up. Mm-hmm. And he prayed for me. They had first asked if if I wanted to see him because thinking that, oh, well, maybe they had called a priest here because... Last rites. Uh, because they, yeah, yeah, exactly. But that was not even something that crossed my mind. So I, I said, yes, somebody else to pray would be great. So <laughs> he, he came and he prayed for me and he anointed and absolved me. And I could not see him because of the way the car was positioned. Mm-hmm. I was still resting on the driver's side door at that point. So the only way I could see someone is if they physically got in the car with me. But I could hear him, and it was such a comfort, such a relief. Um, and he stayed on the scene. I asked him to come back to pray for my legs because they were really hurting. I come to find out I had two compound fractures mm-hmm. in my leg where the bones were sticking out of the skin. I broke 15 bones in total and had some internal organ damage. Um, but he stayed on the scene for about an hour and silently prayed the rosary and in all the commotion, you know, like I said, no one saw him leave. And afterwards people were asking who this priest was because this area of Missouri is, is a very Protestant area. There's only in very rural, rural, there are only, um, two Catholic parishes in the whole area. And it wasn't that priest, either of, the, of those priests there. So no one recognized him. He also had a foreign accent, which uh, come to find out was Irish. So, <laughs> so you know, odd. You wouldn't think in rural Missouri right. you would find, find an Irish priest. So that was interesting, too. Random and, Irish brogue yep. shows up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so later, they, you know, people were asking about this, and they went through the 70 photos that were taken at the scene, and he wasn't in any of them. So this became known as the mystery priest story and it went absolutely viral. It was on every major news network. Um, I watched myself on (laughs) Good Morning America, the Today Show. It was surreal. So that was something that I think uh, I personally believe that my survival was a miracle. My doctors told me I should have been dead, brain dead or paralyzed. And my surgeon told me specifically that Everything that happened to me was a miracle. So um, I believe that anyway, but to hear that from from your doctors um, was a a good confirmation too. So I think that a lot of people in my hometown would have heard about this, but because the priest was there and all this attention came around because of that, a much greater audience got to hear, even even worldwide. It was um, because it was a priest, it got picked up by several of the Hispanic news organizations. 
And I have uh, people all over, over the world contacted me, um, wishing me well and sending their prayers. So uh, it turned out that the priest was a real man. He, <laughs> yes, his name is Father Patrick Dowling. He lives in Columbia, Missouri, which is about two hours away from where the car crash occurred. And that particular Sunday morning, he was filling in for a sick priest in another parish. And he does prison ministry, so he doesn't have a congregation, and he doesn't read the TV, excuse me, read the newspaper or watch TV. So he didn't know anyone was looking for him. It wasn't a matter of him hiding. It was just he didn't know. So when he came forward, I was very glad. Um, I had some other people say, oh, I wish, you know, it was always an angel. But for me, he was my earthly angel when I needed him most. So it was uh, truly, truly a godsend that day and uh, just part of the such a wonderful things that happened through a tragic event. Um, how long did it take for him, for you guys to find him? About a week. So another another priest that he knew said, hey, they were they said that they're looking for this priest. They described him. He said, I think it might be you. Did you pray with anybody? And it was indeed him. So oh, I got so to see funny. him. Yes, I got to see him in the hospital. He came when I was in ICU about a week after the crash. And I started crying when he walked into the room. And he thought I was sad at first. I said, no, I'm just I'm so happy you're here. I just got very emotional. So yeah. I've seen him um, a couple times after that for my birthday. My 20th birthday was a, a month and a half after that crash. And then we were flown to New York and did a Christmas special on a cable news network as well. So uh, that was pretty neat. That was my first time in New York. I never thought that I would <laughs> end up moving here, but uh, that it, was, it was a pretty neat experience. It's that time of year again when I've got to put together a wish list for my imaginary boyfriend and or anyone else in the world who wants to buy me things for Christmas or whatever holiday. Um, and at the top of that list is a Holly and Tanager bag, specifically the professional. It's an extraordinary backpack designed to take me or you or I don't know, the recipient of your beautiful gift from here to everywhere with luxurious style and effortless preparation. My favorite thing about it is the ultra wide shoulder straps. They adjust to fit and make carrying all of the stuff uh, painless, which is phenomenal because the bag I have right now makes me hurt for days. Um, the bag is made out of Italian leather. It's supple, soft, mill-grain cowhide with a luxurious touch. There are beautiful gold and silver hardware that never chips. And my other favorite part, all of the interior pockets so that my little organizing dork mind can get everything in order. Um, you'll never desire more pockets. You'll have everything organized just the way you want. So... This is on the top of my wish list this season. As a listener of Leveling the Playing Field, you can get 15% off your first order for yourself or that special someone by visiting hollyandtanager.com slash LTPF and then use promo code LTPF at checkout. Again, that's 15% off your first order by visiting hollyandtanager.com slash LTPF and using promo code LTPF at checkout. After the accident um, and you're in the hospital, did you end up staying at that hospital um, or were you transferred up to St. Louis? I stayed at that hospital, Blessing Hospital in Quincy, Illinois, for all five weeks of my inpatient stay. So the month prior to the crash, a new surgeon had joined the 
team at that hospital and because of her joining it upgraded the trauma level so that way they were able to take care of me from start to finish they didn't have to transfer me whereas if this had happened a month prior they would have had to it was great because my my family's home is about not even 10 blocks from this hospital so it was uh it was great for us to be able to be so close and to have friends and family so near during that time oh for sure um were you, I mean, were you conscious the whole time from, I mean, obviously surgery, you're not going to be conscious, but, right. um, you know, for that beginning part of when they brought you in, uh, yes. And yes, I was, oh, go ahead. No. And I was going to say, and I mean, what was going through your mind? Right. So I was conscious the entire time from the minute the crash occurred, all the way until they put me under for emergency surgery. So all through the helicopter ride, all through the extrication process, I was conscious. I was feeling every bit of pain. It was horrible. And I think what was going through my mind was I was pretty patient. I thought, okay, well, it seems like it's been a long time, but I know <laughs> that it's, you know, maybe it's only been about a half hour because I'm in a lot of pain. So I think my, my mind is just thinking that it's taking a long time. Mm-hmm. I had no idea that it was actually taking over two hours. Um, and just such a serious, um, such a serious crash, but I didn't, I didn't ever think that I was going to die. I thought that I was going to get out. I didn't know how bad my injuries were at the time. Thankfully, the uh, the steering column had been shoved into my abdomen and I broke nine ribs because of that. But it also I couldn't see any of my legs, nothing like that. So I never saw any of the really bad trauma, which was really good. So, uh, I, you know, I never thought that I was going to die. I just thought, OK, I'm just going to keep praying. I'm going to listen to the prayers of others. I did get to talk to my mom, too, at the one of the first two couples that was on the scene who were driving behind me. I remembered my mom's phone number and I got to talk to her, got to tell her I loved her. So, you know, we didn't, we didn't think or even know that if it would be the last time, but I'm glad I did. Mm-hmm. And she prayed for me too. That was a, and it was Sunday morning. So they had just gotten to church and instead of going inside to church, everybody was out in the parking lot, just praying um, once they had found out. So, um, and I, I know that they had called other churches in the, my small hometown just to let them know as well. So it was a, uh, I, I felt the strength from, from everybody else too. So it wasn't something, a situation of despair. Mm-hmm. I do remember being very thirsty and asking <laughs> if, can I have a drink? Like, I won't even, like, I won't even swallow it if I can just have something in my mouth. Cause I remember that just being a dry sensation. And they also put a, a blue towel over my face anytime that they were going to be doing any of the metal work or anything that they didn't want me to see. So they were very um, considerate and compassionate on for everything. So I'm grateful for the emergency personnel that were there that day. You, um, so five weeks, right? Numerous mm-hmm. surgeries Did, were all of your surgeries. I'm guessing were spread out even past that five weeks, right? Uh, no, actually I had, I think I had f- maybe three or four surgeries in the first five days. And then after that, I only had one surgery that required me to go to St. Louis to get a, um, it was kind of like a like a some type of a a valve removed. Some, I'm, mm. I'm not exactly sure what it was, but it wasn't major. So all of the major surgeries were done in my hometown. Oh, so that's nice. Um, yes. I mean, you know, if there's going to be a nice part, right? <laughs> and, and there are. That, that's uh, that's what I say. You know, it's, yeah, um, yeah. It's there were nice things that happened. Um, 
five weeks is a lot of time to spend in a hospital. I've, I'm fortunate. I've literally only spent maybe 13 hours in a hospital. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know, nothing serious. Um, I, I wanted to like throw things. (laughs) I was so uncomfortable and like, and again, I didn't have it. I turned out not to have anything serious, but like I didn't have broken anything. Right. So Mm -hmm. five weeks, how does that, how'd you get through that? It was not easy. The first week when I was in ICU, I was on a lot of heavy medication. I don't remember a whole lot. There were specific things like the priest visiting or other visits from family and friends that I do remember, but the day-to-day was quite a blur. And then after that, I was downgraded to the intermediate care unit, and that's where I started remembering a lot more. Um, So I was there about a week and then spent three weeks in the physical therapy rehab floor, which was where that was the toughest part just because it was trying to do things that I wasn't hadn't done in a while and relearn how to do things or adjust how I used to do things in the past, just day-to-day things, whether it be bathing or trying to tie, tie a shoe, um, things like that. So, but I, I had wonderful, wonderful therapists and nurses and doctors the entire time. The hardest part was this was, you know, I was a sophomore in college at that time, even though I had to take the semester off from school, but all of my friends were, all of my high school friends were away at their colleges. And obviously my friends were all at Tulane. So I just didn't really have anybody my own age, but I did have, they, they gave me a double room every time and they gave my mom the second bed in the hospital. So mm-hmm. I never had to share a room with anyone. Um, and it was just because this is a small community and this was on the news every day, uh, or not every day, but you know, it was very prominent. Uh, there was a lot of just the hospital was so wonderful and I'm very grateful for that. So my mom stayed with me every night, I think, except for two in which my aunt stayed instead. So <laughs> yeah. And with my mom being self-employed, she was able to, to take that time to, to dedicate to me. And we would have family dinners every night in the hospital room where my two younger siblings and my parents would both be there and we'd get takeout food and just sit there. So it was, um, that was a big part of it was helping me get through it, but there were, you know, it's not a good place to be mentally either. It's a lot of, I wouldn't say why me, but just trying to get a better understanding of what really happened and the wrong that had been done to me was difficult, but uh, it was, I had wonderful support, like I said, and besides my faith in my family, the other thing that really got me through was watching sports on TV. So I would watch the Cardinals every night. It was August during the playoff push. And that was what something, something, it gave me something to look forward to. And it was a distraction away from the pain in my circumstances. Um, you said that you, that people reached out to you from like all over. Mm-hmm. Um, how did, you know, 2013, it's not too long ago, but it feels like forever ago, right? Mm-hmm. Um, was that online? Was that, you know, are people sending you cards? Cards and definitely Facebook. I, man, I have Facebook friend requests that I still haven't responded to from that time. They all just kind of piled up. You know, I couldn't really focus on anything besides my own recovery at that time. But I do, I mean, I have a friend even in Zimbabwe who I'm still Facebook friends with to this day um, and people all over the world, whether it be locally in um, 
in the Midwest or even people nationally and internationally. But it was a lot of Facebook messages, people reaching out. There were obviously the main news sites that picked it up, faith-based sites picked it up. I'd been interviewed by a couple of um, faith-based publications or networks, things like that. And so it keeps spreading. It's funny, it doesn't happen too much anymore, but it will go viral occasionally. So it'll be a couple of years after and it's like, oh, wow, I'm getting a bunch of new friend requests. And I see that it's being shared on a certain channel or a certain Facebook page, things like that. That's so funny. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me how, you know, aside from watching the Cardinals playing, tell me how sports um, really started impacting you on a day-to-day basis while you were recovering. Sure. So I had a good friend in high school. He knew how much I love baseball. He was a big baseball fan too. And he reached out to the community relations departments for a couple teams Um, Buster Posey was my favorite player at the time. So he reached out to the Giants and said, hey, this is what happened to this girl. Could you send her something? And they did. I got a beach towel. I got a replica World Series ring that Mm -hmm. sits on my desk right in front of my keyboard. So I see it every day. It's a nice reminder. And, um, you know, signed picture of Buster Posey. Very nice letter from the organization. Uh, Minor league team sent me some things after they had seen my story. And um, once I was out of the hospital, the Cardinals rolled out the red carpet for me. It was wonderful. I got to go to several games in my walker, my wheelchair, and finally with a cane. So it was definitely a big part of my journey. Um, and how did your how did your university respond? They were great too. I got a big care package from them. They sent me, you know, a sweatshirt, blanket, everything. They were very accommodating. I had professors who reached out, even a professor who had sent me, um, he knew I had been reading a book and he sent me the, um, like the movie adaptation that he really liked of, of this particular book. So it was really sweet. Um, I had great support from my, my friends and my, um, college ministry back on campus. I got to Skype in with them a few times. And then even after I was out of the hospital, I flew to New Orleans by myself. I think it was in about maybe November, about this time, five years ago. And I, I did it myself. I, you know, I was there with uh, my cane and, and getting around that way. So I, it was really, it was really therapeutic to be with my friends again, to feel normal and to know that I was coming back there because my family and I had talked to see if maybe I wanted to transfer to a school closer to home. I mean, New Orleans is, is like 800 miles away from Quincy. So they thought, well, if I needed to see my doctors, maybe I should be closer to home. Just to make things a little easier for me. But I said, no, I want to go back to school where I'm, where I'm supposed to be, where I want to feel normal, like, things like that. And I didn't want to have to make a new transition. So ultimately, it was the right decision for me. Um, at some point, you also heard from someone in the athletics department, correct? Yes, that's true. So the athletic director at the time for Tulane, Rick Dixon, he had heard about the story and he, along with producers for every morning TV show, had left uh, voicemails on our home machine. And he had said, you know, I heard your story. I know you're a Tulane student. If there's ever anything that I can do for you, just give me a call. So I went to school five months after the crash occurred. And at that time, my surgeon told me that where I was at at five months is where most people are at in two years. So I had made a very, very quick recovery. I was not fully recovered at that point. I would be in physical therapy for another year after that about. And I got back to school 
I was secretary of the pre-dental society at that time, and I'm sitting <laughs> at our first meeting, taking notes, and I look around the room, and I think, you know, I don't think I want to do this anymore. So I thought about what my passions were, and my passion was definitely sports, and then I had been confirmed through everything that I had experienced, and the kindness from the Cardinals and the other teams, and just the bond that I felt and the support that I felt during my recovery. So I thought, okay, I want to work in sports. And I still had the phone number for the athletic director. So I gave him a call and he said, yeah, come up, we'll, we'll uh, set up a meeting. So I did, got to tell him my whole story in person. And I told him I'd like to work there. So I got an internship first in the fundraising area and then in event planning. And then finally I settled in the marketing department, which is where I was for the longest amount of time at Tulane. When, um, when you made that switch in your, in your mind, right? Like, man, maybe I don't want to be a dentist. Do you like, did you know what area? Well, first of all, like who knows what areas there are in sports at that Mm -hmm. point. Right. But did you have an idea of what it was within sports or was it just sports? Just sports. I had no idea. I hadn't, didn't know anybody who had worked in sports before. So this was really my first introduction. And I knew we had an athletic department. So, and this connection with the athletic director, I was, I'd already gone to a lot of the sporting events at Tulane. It was part of my college experience. So I thought that was a good place to start. I'm really grateful that Tulane gave me that opportunity because it's a D1 school. So I got all that D1 experience, but it's at a much smaller um, scale. So I wasn't fighting with others to, um, you know, it wasn't so competitive that I had to, um, I got to bounce around in the different departments and really learn a lot whether, whereas, you know, at, a, at an LSU or something, those, those spots are very competitive in the uh, athletic department. One of the things about you that I adore is your, your focus and, um, your, I don't know. You're just your tenacity, right? So when looking at even just your LinkedIn, I mean, did you ever take a break? Did you ever like, I don't know, say go on a vacation? Because you are constantly <laughs> like interning here, interning there. Um, I, like winter break is not a thing for you, apparently, when you were yeah. in school. And it's incredible. Oh, thank you. I think that I... It helped knowing what I wanted to do so early. I had friends who, you know, even after graduation, weren't really sure what they wanted to go into. And and that's okay. Everybody is at their own pace. But for me, I was just so excited to learn. So it wasn't that I was overworking myself. It was that I was wanting to learn more and expose myself to more and meet more people and just learn from them. So, yeah, like you said, I it was a good opportunity. Winter break that following year, my junior year, I my hometown has a small university, Quincy University, and I just made an appointment with their uh, assistant athletic director and asked if I could help out. And they said yes, because all of their student workers were home for Christmas. So I got some experience working basketball for the first time. Um, but, you know, it was just things like that, little things. Um, I, yeah, I, I definitely, uh, I have been on vacation, so you don't have to worry about that. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I do, I do take time, um, you know, take time to, to focus on me and focus on the people around me, the people that I love. But at the same time, I'm always grateful for any opportunity that there is to learn or is to, is to meet new people. That's what I really love about the industry. And 
I know that some people see networking as something really superficial or it's just handing out business cards, but I love networking events because I feel like if I'm genuine, then the other person will want to be genuine too. And I find that that is so often the case. So it's not superficial for me. I really do want to learn, want to learn from others, meet whoever's there. Um, so that's just something that it's, it's just part of my personality. So I, I wouldn't change that to, to go into a networking event or, or any of these other places. It really is a genuine interest to learn and, uh, and be better and grow in the industry. Well, and I think, you know, there are two approaches to networking, right? There is the transactional Yes. Um, way to go about networking. And then there's the relationship building, which if you're going in from a transactional point of view where you're like, here, give, let me give you my card and get your card so that at some point in time I can get something from you. Right. As opposed to, hey, let me learn about you. And, and you know, if we connect, you know, if there's, you know, some sort of connection there, whether it's a professional level or like a more personal level, like I want to learn about you as a human. <laughs> exactly. That's so much more valuable than a transactional approach could ever be. Right. And so I think people get like worried and concerned with networking because they think that they're supposed to come out of a networking event with something tangible. And most of the time, the best experiences that I've had with networking are the intangibles, right? Those, yes. those connections and, um, and just like conversations as opposed to, you know, I mean, every, listen, I think that targeted networking can be really, really great and important. But I also think, um, that the person that you're standing next to in line to get your cocktail, who you have no idea who the hell they are, you know, that's just as important as talking to the CEO of whatever organization you, you want to work for. Definitely. And I had that experience in um, two years ago, I went to the baseball winter meetings that were held in the DC area and I made friends with the other job applicants. So we were all there for the job fair, maybe even competing for the same position, but I've made great connections. And now that we all are in the industry, we have that connection. So it was um, much less a, um, you know, a, uh, we weren't fighting for the same position, but much more so, hey, we're in this together. We'll probably be seeing each other along the way in our careers. So let's right. be friends. And it, it definitely turned out that way. This episode is brought to you by San Diego State University's Sports MBA program. Applications are now closed and the globally recognized SDSU Sports MBA program is looking forward to welcoming in the class of 2020 to America's finest city in January. Missed the deadline but still interested in requesting info for the 2021 class? The SDSU Sports MBA would love to help. Visit sdsu.edu slash sports MBA. In the meantime, the SDSU Sports MBA program would like to sincerely thank Bobby Sue, aw, you guys, for all that she does for women in the sports industry. Thank you for helping us inspire the next generation of female sports industry leaders. That was kind of awkward, but really sweet, SDSU. Thank you for being a sponsor of the program and for supporting us over the last few weeks. Um, I love what you're doing with your program at SDSU, and I hope that people who are interested in working in the sports business seriously consider your program. Thank you for what you said. That was really nice.
when um, when you reached out to the assistant athletic director at Quincy, mm-hmm. how did you do that? Like, so, and this sounds, I don't know, elementary, but literally, how did you do that? Because I think right. for a lot of people listening, especially younger, you know, students or, you know, women who are thinking of getting in the industry, sometimes we get too much in our heads about the the steps. So it's helpful Mm -hmm. to hear the steps that people took. Sure. I can't remember if I just picked up the phone and called or if I sent an email, but either way I got in touch with, uh, I got in touch with him and I said, I'm a current student at Tulane. I work for their athletic department. I'm home for winter break for four weeks and I'm available. So I'm, I'd like to volunteer. If there's any capacity where you'd like some help, I'd love to learn from you and your organization. So that's kind of the approach I took. And like I said, they were very grateful. I, I didn't get paid, but they gave me, you know, a very nice jacket to wear during the basketball <laughs> game. So, uh, you know, as, as a college student, you'll, uh, you know, that's a great perk. So, yeah. and, and I did, I, I learned, I learned things that I never got to experience at Tulane just because it was in a, a different department. So, and uh, I'm still still connected with that person to this day. We um, we even exchanged emails earlier this year. He's at another school now. But um, yeah, even just building that relationship where I worked maybe I only worked about three games, I think, during that whole winter break. But it still left a big impact. So I was glad for that experience. Um, you have <laughs> you worked for an organization for a while that in my brain makes me think of actual king cakes yes so what the hell are the new orleans baby cakes sure so let me preface this by (laughs) stating i never worked for the new orleans baby cakes because before i worked for them before they changed their name so i was always a zephyr but um yes so i worked for them for two about two seasons when they were the new orleans zephyrs before they made the name change and so uh baby cakes are and during mardi gras season there is a pastry that is round, kind of like a big donut. It's got frosting on it with purple, green, and oh gold God, so sugar. So much sugar. It is delicious. It is honestly my favorite food. Is I'm it not really? That. Yes, it is. I love <laughs> cream cheese king cake. That is my favorite food. So I'll be going to New Orleans in January, and I will be bringing some back with oh me. Oh, so, my gosh. Yes. So... And there's a tradition where a plastic baby is baked inside of the king cake. And then the tradition is that whoever ends up with the baby, you have to bring the next king cake to the next party. And now that's not so much of a tradition anymore, but it is definitely still part of it. I think that there's a law now where you're not allowed to bake them inside because it's a choking hazard. So normally they come on top of the box or something like that. But um, yeah, so that's where the name comes from. It's very celebratory, very New Orleans. So. They're, they're hilarious. Um, my former boss, um, always got one every year from somebody. And I mean, I'm not, I'm a, I'm a cupcake person. I'm not a cake cake person. And mm-hmm. people are always very confused because they're like, isn't it the same damn thing? And I'm like, no, there's definitely something <laughs> different about cupcakes. But, um, though, I mean, they're just the funniest looking cakes and there's just mm-hmm. so much sugar. It's right. crazy. And, but they're hilarious. I mean, if yep. you've never seen one, I'll try and find pictures or I'm sure you have some pictures that you can send me. Oh yeah. Um, and, and they're delightful. And it, the little baby 
thing always just cracks me up. Yes, there's a certain bakery in New Orleans that they have a themed baby every year. So it could be, um, I, I don't even remember, but it's something New Orleans related. So it's maybe not a baby, but it's like a dancer or a football player or something like that. So yeah. those are little collectible items. So let's talk about some of the things that you did while you worked for them, um, because you you ended up doing a lot of different things for them. Yes. So... I think in anywhere in minor league baseball, you will wear many different hats and it prepares you for any experience that you have afterwards, whether you continue to work in the minor leagues or if you leave sports entirely or if you go to another organization, you will have learned to do a lot. So I started out, I was actually, I actually interviewed for their community, excuse me, their promotions internship, which is what I had done at, uh, at Tulane. I was their in-game host. So doing the on-field contest, things like that, announcing raffle prizes, all those fun things. So that's what they needed for New Orleans. And I interviewed, and they actually offered me a second internship too, so they just combined it into two. So I was the community relations and promotions intern. And at that time, I still didn't know which direction I, I wanted to go. So I said, great, I'd love to do it. So every game day, I was on the field, you know, getting contestants, doing all the fun stuff that minor league baseball is known for. And then during the day, I would spend most of the time focused on community relations efforts, whether it was helping to organize a food drive or uh, a book reading program, mascot visits, things like that. And you experience every aspect of minor league baseball. I've worked in you know, the ticket office, the ticket sales, corporate sales, things like that. So you really do experience everything, especially tarp pools. So if uh, you work in minor league baseball, you will be out in the field before the game, you know, maybe after the game, putting on the tarp, pulling it off. And in-game tarp pulls are the ones that are uh, can give you a little bit of anxiety. So it's uh, it's pretty intense sometimes. But um, I wouldn't trade it for anything. It really prepared me for the next steps of my career. I'm very grateful for the time I spent in minor league baseball. How long did it take before you didn't have to use a cane any longer? So let's see. I was in a wheelchair for about two or three weeks after I got out of the hospital and then I transitioned to a walker. So that was late September. And then by Halloween, I didn't need the walker anymore, but I did use it for my Halloween costume because I was <laughs> Walker, Texas Ranger. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, the internet helped me with that one. Um, That's amazing. And so, and then I, I took my cane with me to school. That was January of 2014 but I didn't, I only use it from getting to and from class just because it's also a visual cue. It allows people to say, Hey, she needs a little bit more room. I'm a little bit slower. So that way people don't barrel past you and end up knocking you over, especially mm -hmm. when my balance wasn't very good. So I didn't use it too much longer after that. And then Tulane has a physical therapy clinic on campus. So I was able to do physical therapy in between classes. And I was doing that until Thanksgiving of 2014. So it was about 15 months, um, 15 month recovery period for me. Which, you know, got you ready to start rolling out tarps. Exactly. A yep, couple months exactly later, right. which is intense after, yes. after going through all of that. Right. And I, at that time I had been working with a personal trainer because there are things that I I have to know my limitations. I am, I, I can walk, I can run, I can, I can do anything I want really. But I 
part of the surgery had to remove part of the muscle from my lower leg on my right hand side. So if I'm going to run, I probably need to build that up before I actually would start running things like that. So I was already in pretty good shape at that point, just because I was working out several times a day, excuse me, several times a week and, uh, you know, prepared for that, that type of, uh, activity. That's good. Do you still, (laughs) um, you know, to this, like, where are you from a physical standpoint today? Do you still have to go through any sort of, um, personal training or physical therapy? No, I don't. I don't need um, anything specifically. Uh, And then uh, I didn't mention this, but I was also in occupational therapy the entirety that I was at home right until I went back to college. And that was huge because it allowed me to play my violin again. My occupational therapist kind of rigged up this contraption that allowed me to turn my wrist in a way that would allow me to play. So I've got full range of motion everywhere. So I'm not limited physically or uh, in any any sense of the word, including playing the violin, so that's, uh, that's something great. Yeah, 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 pretty cool. Um, how did you end up with your internship with the Buccaneers? Sure. So I had been, you know, networking a lot of places. I had known that the Buccaneers were hosting, or excuse me, the Tampa Bay Rays were hosting an a networking event in Tampa, and I had applied for the Buccaneers internship for that summer, for that season. So I had scheduled to do that, and I had applied. Somebody that I knew had referred me. So, like I said, you know, it's always about building those relationships. And I got the interview, and I was the first of the interns for that year to be hired. So I knew pretty early, which was nice. And I didn't have to, I knew my plans after college didn't have to stress about that. So by the time that I had come to Tampa for that networking event, I already knew that I was going to be working there that summer. So it was a much more relaxing and I got to explore Tampa a little bit and uh, figure out, uh, okay, this is going to be my new home for the next uh, seven months or so. Did you, um, was it while you were with the baby cake or Zephyrs, whatever they were Yeah, <laughs> with the New All Orleans right. minor league team yes. that you realized that you wanted to go the community relations route? Yes, I realized that, you know, sports had helped me through the toughest part of my life, and I knew that I could do the same for others. And being in that environment in a community relations area where we could make a difference in people's lives and have kids come to the field and, you know, really experience, just really experience what the goodness of baseball is all about, um, in its purest form, just being down the field, things like that, and getting to experience it at that level, that's what made a difference for me. And I realized that, okay, I want to work in sports and help people. So that's what shaped that experience for me. And also just seeing the collaboration with even the other interns that I worked with in New Orleans and how when you really get an an organization that has a lot of buy-in for helping others and doing good, I knew that's something I wanted to be a part of. What were the differences between minor league baseball and working for an NFL team? Sure. Um, the number of games, <laughs> I would say <laughs> that is a big difference. You know, 10 home games versus, uh, let's see, uh, 71 maybe. Um, so it's a big difference. But uh, so there's much more time to do other things when, I, you know, when you're working for uh also just, just a major league team, you know, you're not maybe wearing so many different, taking so many different responsibilities, you know, there's the same level of of trust and things expected, but you're not pulled in so many different directions. 
And I think just recognizing that, wow, the having, um, you know, I remember thinking when my first couple of weeks at the Buccaneers, I was like, wow, you know, there's an entire room full of accountants. Like we had one person who did that and other <laughs> things too. So that was something that, that made a big impression on me. Um, so there was that, and, you know, just seeing that everybody really does understand their roles well, things like that. So and not to say that people don't in minor league baseball, there's just a different need there. So I think that that was the biggest difference. And then, you know, the, the programming that you were involved with, um, you know, in football was a little different than minor league baseball, right? How did, yes. you know, how does the community you're in shape the type of programming that is provided? Right. I think that, you know, and it has to do a lot with um, resources and, you know, getting in the schools, things like that. The most I did was with schools in New Orleans would be things like, taking the mascot for a visit and doing like a reading thing, stuff like that. But, you know, with the Buccaneers, we did lots of different visits, whether it was for, you know, plate 60, uh, you know, exercise things or, um, the, the vision, um, the, the glasses where they had the, um, the RV that went around to the schools to do those things, just being able to impact people's lives in, in different ways too. So that that's another difference. The internship, um, you know, lasts about seven months. When do you start, you know, you're obviously, I mean, I know you, you're the type of person you're all in. So you're doing everything you can in that moment in that role. But at what point do you also start kind of looking beyond? Right. At that time I knew I, I mean, I, I still love baseball. Baseball is my, my number one sport. I, very much enjoyed working in football, but I knew that the baseball winter meetings were going to be coming up, um, as I mentioned, and that's in December every year. So I asked my supervisors at the Buccaneers, you know, there's this job fair. Can I take a couple days off to go do that? So it was early December that I started looking. And even even before that, I'd been looking, but that was the first real, um, you know, all-in push to, to try to look for that. So I had some interviews there, and that was a great experience maybe not even so much from the job fair perspective, but just getting to you know be in the lobby and meet people and especially other women there. I, I recognized somebody and I just walked up and introduced myself and now we're great friends. And, and one of those women lives here in the city. So uh, she and I, she and I see each other pretty frequently. So that was the start of it. And just all through that month, I remember applying and interviewing and, you know, trying to network and go to other in January after the internship ended, I actually even flew from Tampa down to Fort Lauderdale to go to a networking event that the Panthers were hosting. So <laughs> it was just, um, you know, being, being flexible and you know, really, it really is looking for a job is a full-time job. So it's a, it's a, it's a lot, but yeah, I, uh, so I, in, in the meantime, after I had, after my internship with the Buccaneers had ended after the college football playoff um, championship that year, I took a spring training position with the Pittsburgh Pirates down in Bradenton <laughs> while I was still looking for a job because I thought, okay, well, here, I'm still working in sports, especially in baseball, and that's a way that I can uh, continue to, to network and to get some experience in the meantime. I was their in-game host for spring training games, and that was so much fun. I was only there for... Uh, I think three or four games before I, I got my full-time job and moved up here. Um, but that was a, a really fun experience too. So I'd never been to a, a spring training game before, even though I'm a big baseball fan and had lived in Florida, 
but that was that was a really fun experience. Well, the timing of when you lived in Florida yeah, exactly. didn't really line up, right? Nope, so it did not. That was your first opportunity, the first time that you were living in Florida that spring training came about. And I mean, if anybody has the opportunity, whether it's in Arizona or in Florida, to go to spring training, it's such a cool experience. Um, everything is so accessible and it's just, I don't know. It's, it's as close to the purest form of baseball. I think you can kind of get in terms of professional, right? It's, it feels magical because everybody's on the same clean slate. You know, they're all starting there. There are guys who are veterans there. There are guys who this is their first spring training invite. They're all you know striving for the same thing. And at that point, you know, everybody's got the mindset that they can win the world series, I think. So yeah. and the fans do too, you know, they're right. all, they're all in. So I love that. I love the start of the season. You get like, they're, you know, much smaller ballparks. Um, you know, so you're, there's this intimacy that, you know, you're like, steps away from a player. Whereas yes. when you're at, you know, a good number of the the pro ballparks, you know, you you aren't that close. I mean, yep. Fenway, like you can basically touch everyone, but right. <laughs> you know, that's that's yes. just my thing. Um so how did this this role with Major League Baseball and the baseball assistance team come up? Sure. So at the time, it was in January that I had applied, early January, and someone I'm connected to in the industry said, hey, he sent me this link to this job. He said, hey, I think you'd be a great fit for this. And New York was not a place that I had ever really considered. <laughs> Just being um, with my with my injuries, having titanium rods in my legs, the, the weather can be a challenge sometimes. E- you know, even in the humidity of, of Florida, I had challenges. So I wasn't sure how winter would work for me, but I thought, you know what, this looks like a great position. Um I I had already known that I wouldn't wouldn't be continuing in the interview process with a couple of several other positions and um I, I interviewed there, felt like it was a really good fit and I got the call um got got the call in February. So um yeah, again, I honestly everywhere that I've been it's been somebody that I've known connected me and introduced me to someplace else. So um it, it, goes back to the the connections thing, the real genuine connections that make a difference. Sure. Can we talk a little bit about going through the interview process with, you know, and, and applying and, and rejection and, and how did you, you know, how did you frame that for yourself? Sure. I, I had been in, it was about five final round interviews and I'd gotten rejected from all of them. And it was, it was tough, you know, especially there was even, um, a, a position that I was really interested in, even locally within the Tampa area, and I thought that it would it looked like it would have been a great fit for me, and so that was really tough to to get rejected from that, especially when I felt connected to the area. I didn't have to move or anything, so I think that after that rejection happened, I was just okay. You know, I've got to look got to look elsewhere and still continue to be positive, even though it was tough sometimes. But I used the opportunity to. You know, being unemployed, you, you don't have to really report to anyone in that time. So even using the opportunity to just, you know, spend like my mom came down and visited for a little bit, things like that. So getting spend time to spend with other people helped through the process. Yeah. So being being able to focus on other things in the midst of rejection and the anxiety of, you know, more job applications and connecting and making sure you're, you know, you're putting your best foot forward and everything. It's 
it's an intense time, but it's important to, to recognize what else is around you too. And it's not just the job. Sure. I mean, and listen, it takes time, right? And had, had you, had you ended up in one of those other opportunities, you wouldn't have been open to this. Yes, exactly. And I'm so grateful for that. I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be right now. So talk a little bit about that and, and what it is and what you do there. Sure. So I work for Major League Baseball's Baseball Assistance Team, or BAT for short. And we're an organization, nonprofit, that helps members of the baseball family in need of medical, financial, psychological, or career development assistance. And the individuals that we can help is very extensive. Basically, if you've worked for two years in professional affiliated baseball, you're eligible for life. So it could be one day as a major league player or two years as a major or minor league coach, a minor league player, major minor league scout, front office employee, umpire, former Negro Leagues player, and women um, who played in the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League and some of their immediate family members. So we help um, people across the country, people across the world. We have consultants in Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic. So um, our impact is very wide-reaching and very, uh, just very varied it could be somebody, you know, if somebody passes away and doesn't have money for the funeral costs, we can help with that. Or somebody loses a job, we can help put food on the table, keep a roof over their head while they continue that search. So we've seen everything and it's uh, it's never a dull day and we enjoy it because of that. I've mentioned this before and I'm going to mention it again now. I have a book problem. I'm not kidding. I now have eight books that I'm working through at one time and I keep buying more. I don't have the time to get through them all anytime in the near future. So this is where Blinkist comes in. Blinkist is the only app that takes thousands of the best-selling nonfiction books and distills them down to their most impactful elements. So you can read or listen to them on your phone in under 15 minutes. With Blinkist, you'll expand your knowledge and learn more in just 15 minutes than you can in almost any other way. Plus, you can listen anywhere. The Blinkist library is massive, from timeless classics like The Power of Habit to current Amazon bestsellers like The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. And by the way, that is a great book. I use Blinkist when I'm driving to and from work. It's the perfect amount of time to get through books like Get Your Shit Together, which we're going into 2019. Don't we all need to get our shit together? And, you know, maybe I'll finally get that together. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash playing to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash playing to start your free seven-day trial. You can cancel anytime. Blinkist.com slash playing. Right now, um, I, I know that you all have, have reached out to um, the baseball family members in California with the wildfires. Yes. Um, and, you know, I've seen in the past um, you post about or just there be news about, um, you know, people within the baseball family with, say, um, drug dependencies and stuff like yes. that and getting them help. Um, you know, what has been, what has been one of the uh, most memorable moments for you in this role? 
the disaster relief applications, sometimes those come in over the phone just because the person doesn't have a reliable access to the computer. So just picking up the phone and, and hearing somebody call to say that, you know, their home is flooded or um, things like that, or they've experienced a fire, anything like that. It's being that front line to say, yes, we're here. Yes, we can help and getting them the help they need as soon as possible. So um, just I am grateful for the opportunity to be a listening ear for people when sometimes people don't have it or they're surrounded by other people who are all going through the same thing and they don't want to burden somebody else with their needs. So I'm grateful that I can be in a position to, you know, lend that listening ear and even, you know, have individuals get emotional over the end over the other end of the phone and to let them know that that's okay. And that I, that I, that we are here for them and can help any way we can. It's such a great program. How is it funded? Primarily through the major league players. Currently we have a spring training fundraising drive. So every spring training or organization visits all 30 clubs at their locations in spring training, whether Arizona or Florida. And we've been doing that since the mid 2000s. So the guys are so generous and it's really become, you know, something that they, they're used to, they've heard of. And a lot of them know someone who's been assisted by that or um, just know about the organization and what we're able to do or able to help in their, their home, whether that be Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria last year, things like that. So um, that's what we do. And then we also do a more friend raising campaign during spring training where we visit the minor league camps as well to tell them about the assistance, not to ask for funds, but to share and let them know that, hey, should they ever need us, whether they're in baseball or out of baseball, we're there for them for life. So what are you doing? I mean, I, you know, obviously you're doing some intake, right? Some of those frontline yes. phone calls. What else are, are you specifically doing in your role? Sure. So we all handle grant management, which I think is a wonderful thing because we all get to understand what it takes and the needs that people have. So definitely handle those grant cases, whether online, uh, very rarely through the phone. They're mostly, um, we mostly receive them online. And then I also handle all our marketing efforts, which includes social media and our printed collateral, things like that. Um, and also accounts receivable. So all of the teams, all the players that elect to donate, that goes through their payroll deduction, our payroll deduction program. So I'm connecting with all the payroll administrators from the 30 clubs to collect that over the season. It's a lot of hats. Yeah, that's true. Yep. <laughs> but it's, uh, it keeps it, it keeps it very interesting. So I, I enjoy it. What, um, you know, aside from the weather and, you know, it's interesting that you brought that up because I remember you and I having that discussion when you were thinking about the role yes. and whether yep. you were going to accept it. Um, uh, and I remember a few of your other hesitations with moving to New York. So talk a little bit about that, you know, what it was like moving to this giant city, right? Right. Um, yeah. When you had never really lived in one. I mean, New Orleans is New Orleans. It's different, right? right? Um, yep. And and what were some of the things that you did to set yourself up for success just living in the city? Right. So I I never wanted to live in New York. And I had friends in college who said, oh, yeah, New York is where I want to be after graduation. And I thought that that was just, okay, good for them, not for me. But uh I was glad that I had visited before, and an, another internship, not in sports, had allowed me the opportunity to go to New York by myself in college for a few days, and that 
I even pretended like I live in New York and I thought, you know what? No one here knows that I don't live here. I'm just going to act like I do. And so I think that that giving that a little taste of that, just even for a few days gave me more confidence about the situation. And, you know, I had, I have a great roommate. She's 75 years old. So I, uh, so that was a good transition. I met her through a website called spareroom.com because she had a spare room. So that was great. And then also, um, it's all about the relationships. Like we said, there was um, uh, a woman who had had the same internship that I did at the Buccaneers, and she lives in New York. And I got several group texts saying, hey, you should meet up with her. You should meet up with her. And mm-hmm. by that time, we'd already been introduced about four or five times. And we were like, <laughs> yep, we got it. So, and, and you know what? Everybody was right. We're great friends. I met her on my second night in the city, and she introduced me um, to some people through her church, and we've all been friends ever since. So I had friends right when I moved here, which was really wonderful. And I gave myself the opportunity just to explore, to go to parks and museums and to see what it was like here and take advantage of all that New York has to offer. So I... I envision myself here for a while. I think I, I really like the city. Um, I like living here. It's really vibrant and it's taught me a lot too. I, <laughs> my favorite thing is the 75 year old roommate. Yeah. <laughs> it, it cracks me up every time, no matter how many times you and I talk about it. <laughs> yes. But I mean, that works out for you, right? Like you, you're a little bit more of a low key person anyway. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think you you tend to do well with those, um, you know, more nurturing vibe anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, has, you know, has it ever, I don't know, like put a damper on your, you know, social life or anything along those lines? No, never. It's great because she goes to a senior center in the evening from about four to eight. They serve dinner there. You know, she has all of her friends. So um, it's great because so when I come home from work, I have the home, the apartment to myself for a little bit. And then as soon as she gets home, we catch up about our days and, and everything. So we're great friends and we can help each other out in several aspects. It's been uh, been one of the best parts of living in New York. Yeah, that's so, so great. Mm-hmm. Um what would you recommend to somebody, you know, who was going potentially to live in New York for the first time? Yeah, I think that I've seen it happen to other friends who maybe arrived before I did. And you just got to meet people. If you don't meet people, it is hard to, if you don't actively make the effort, it's probably not going to happen on its own. So and that can be more difficult for other people, and that's understandable. But, you know, even if there's somebody that you know that you connected with in college or through the industry that you can just meet up with for coffee, you never know where that can end up. And just in the city of, you know, 8 million people, it's you can feel alone sometimes, which seems a little bit ironic, but it is a reality for a lot of people. So especially in the winter, it's tough. We're outside in, 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 the, in the elements, whereas it's different if you're living somewhere with a car, you're just hopping in the car and getting door to door, but we're really outside there. So it's, uh, especially in the winter months, it's more difficult, but I think that making sure that you have a, a group to go to, whether you join a religious community or join an exercise program or your alumni, alumni events or go to the other networking events in your industry, I think that's really important. 
One of the great things about New York City when it comes to our industry is the, I mean, the number of um, teams um, of leagues and associations, and in particular for women in our industry, that's the that's the main wise chapter, right? Yes. Yep. And there are just so many different events um, that are connected. Can you talk a little bit about some of the, you know, ways that that has helped you with connections in the industry? Sure. There's a, there's a great sports, like you said, great sports networking community here in New York, whether that's through um, like around hashtag sports, there's usually a meetup during that conference during the summer. Um, and WISE has their events, whether that's the luncheon or that program that they put on annually. Their Twitter is, I've been to Twitter several times. They host a sports networking thing. So it's really, if you stay in the loop, you'll hear about things. If you follow certain people on Twitter or LinkedIn, you'll see those opportunities. And it's, I noticed it this year. I went to a networking event at Twitter a few weeks ago, and I hadn't been there in about a year and a half. And I was shocked at how many people I knew in the room compared to the previous year. It was just, wow, I, I've really built a network here. And I didn't even I didn't even really realize that I had been consciously doing it. It was just, okay, I, I ran into this person there and there. and um, Or even people that I'd never met, but I'd seen them on Twitter or LinkedIn. Right. You know, everybody's, uh, everybody's accessible in New York, um, especially when they, when they come to those events. And it just makes for an even better and brighter network. And then one of the other um, networks that you are fortunate enough to be a part of um, and that I think has been increasingly prominent is women in baseball. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the, you know, I mean, I know winter meetings are coming up, so there'll be an event that um, you're going to go to, but how's that been helpful for you as well? Right. I think that, you know, even the Twitter community is helpful. So just because someone doesn't have to be in New York City to be well connected within baseball or a woman within baseball, but I, it's wonderful to have so many women who are whether they're you know my age, my level, or above, or even interns that are willing to give back and help others in baseball because it's it's a long season. Um, whether you work on it for a team or a club, it's a long season. And so I think just being able to have another support group of women is so important so that, you know, they understand what you go through daily, understand your perspective in the sports industry. And, you know, just to, just to be there, whether it's to talk about the industry or to not, it's great to have that network and those friends to, um, to understand where you're coming from and also understand that you don't want to talk about it all the time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, there are so many, you know, times when people will be like, you know, hey, heard this is going on at your organization. I just look at them. I'm like, I, can we just order food? Yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> you know, yep. can we can we not? I don't, you know, it. it's just, you know, work can be all consuming, right? Yes. And there are so many different facets to ourselves. And, you know, with you, when, when you and Megan connected up there, I was so happy. Yes. Um, because I, I just knew that you two would hit it off and that, um, you have a lot of similar values and, um, mm-hmm. and areas of commonality. So, um, you know, 
you don't always have to talk about sports, right? Exactly. And we usually don't. We, I would say we very rarely talk about sports more together just because we have other friends around too. So it, uh, it gives us that bond, but allows us to explore other areas of friendship as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, what are some things that you're looking forward to as we, uh, kind of crazy enough, we're closing out the year of 2018. I, don't understand how quickly this year just went, but you know, what are some things that you're looking forward to? Well, next week I'm going to the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. You so are? that'll be a first for me. Yes. Yes. I'll be in the city for Thanksgiving and I'm going with friends who go every year. So I'm glad that I don't have to put too much thought into it that I can just <laughs> tag along. So that'll be fun. Um, like I said, the baseball winter meetings are coming up. We have an event there and our board meeting. So that's kind of our main focus from an organizational perspective as well. But baseball is lucky in that we are in the off season right now. So we close between Christmas and new year. So I get to go, get to go home, be with my family for about a week and a half. So that's a time that I'm really looking forward to. I'm not coming back until new year's Eve. So I will have that time to spend with my family and to just relax and recharge and, you know, all about self care. So that's, uh, that's really something that I can look forward to take a breather, not have to, you know, not have to think anything about, um, and you know, I won't be, uh, I won't be, networking and uh, or trying to volunteer during that winter break but Good. <laughs> not Good. this year right right so I'm, I'm looking forward to that and spending time with my family do you um so you get back to new york on new year's eve yeah yep I, I it was the day that the flights were cheapest so i come at it like four o'clock in the afternoon so, so what are you gonna do for for the big night do you go and join the crushing masses <laughs> absolutely not <laughs> honestly last year it was just it was just too cold i not ashamed to say it, i had a quiet night in and it was great it was it was wonderful from the comfort of my own uh, own apartment i could kind of see the glow of the fireworks yeah but it, it was pretty quiet so i, I don't know what i'm going to do this year maybe it'll be a li- little bit more lively but if it's not i'm okay with that too yeah i mean listen i think I think sometimes those experiences are great, like once maybe, but then it's also like, wow, it's cold outside and there's a million people around and hey, my anxiety does not like that. No, no. No. I'm more excited for the parade, so I'll I'll stick with that and and skip skip New Year's Eve in Times Square. That'll be fun. I'm looking forward to your... uh, to your social media feeds from that day. That'll be super fun to watch. Um, Let's talk a little bit about that self-care. You know how we do here. So what is it that you do? Yes. As we've already discussed, my faith is, is of utmost importance to me. So just having, you know, a consistent prayer life and and time of uh, time when I can spend, um, you know, focusing on my, my relationship with Christ. And also I'm part of a new church here in New York city, which is really exciting. It's also a lot of work. So I, we have a great community there. And even this Sunday, we're going to spend some time just hanging out together, which is great. So I have a wonderful community of people here in New York. And I spend a lot of time talking to my family on the phone because we live in many different places, the Midwest, Texas, and I'm in New York. So just having that connection to, um, to the people I'm close with really helps me get through, through the tougher days. Yeah. Well, those are all really good things. And I am personally just very proud of you. Um, oh. Having been able to be even just a tiny little part of your journey has been really um, 
I don't know, just it has it has been a very bright spot for me. Well, thank you. That means so much. I consider you a great friend and mentor, so it means Aww. the world to me to hear that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for sharing your story. Um, you know, I think, like I said, the timing of this is really great because, you know, there are so many things that sports can do for good. And, um, you know, I'm grateful to sport for what it did in my life. And, um, the ability to give back through sport, I think is so important. So, um, you know, I know that your story is going to resonate with a lot of people and make them have, have a moment of contemplation to think about why they're grateful for sports. Sure. I'm glad to do it. And I'm uh, very honored to, to be here. Like I said before. Thank you to Katie for taking time to talk with me. I always love our conversations generally, but to be able to dig into her background and um, hear her tell her story and and her evolution through sport is just something really special to me. Um, I got a little teary at the end when I was talking about how proud of her I am, and, and I truly am. I think um, you know it, there's so much that that she's going to accomplish and. Um, anyway, I'm grateful to have her in my life and all of you this Thanksgiving. Um, and thank you for your patience as we put this episode out. Um, you guys are, are the best listeners ever. Speaking of being the best listeners ever, if you could go and rate, review, and subscribe, of course, but rating and reviewing is super important for new people to find this. So if you can go to Apple Podcasts and do that, that would be fantastic. You can also subscribe on uh, Google Podcasts, I guess it's called now, Uh, TuneIn, Stitcher, and then we're also on RadioInfluence.com and LTPFPod.com. And again, social media, please reach out. We're at LTPF on Twitter, on Facebook, and Instagram. You can email us at LTPF at gmail.com. And finally, make sure you join that private Facebook group. Search for Leveling the Playing Field group and uh, answer those questions and join in the conversation. I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week and um, are getting excited for the best holiday of the year, Thanksgiving because all of the food, my friends, (laughs) bye now. I'm Tracy Beans, host of the new podcast, Dark to Light with Frank and Beans on Radio Influence. It's a new show about politics, but not the way you're used to. What we talk about is actually true. And it's also stuff they don't want you to hear. So we bring it to you weekly. All the intrigue and spin and double talk spelled out for you right with my co-host Frank's special flavor of commentary. Don't miss him. He's an experience. So join us. Dark to Light with Frank and me, Tracy Beans, drops each Friday on Apple Podcasts Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.